Welcome to Day 2 Cloud. Ned, we have a show on app modernization or modern apps, or I guess kind of both of them with our sponsor today, uh, VMware. Right. And this is a really interesting conversation. It's not just about VMware. It's really about this larger app modernization landscape that we find ourselves in. And the, the point that I took home from everything was consistency is key at multiple layers if you're going to responsibly manage this app real estate that you have. So let, let's get right into the conversation. Enjoy this conversation with Kit Kober, VP and Cloud CTO at VMware, as well as Dormain Druitz, Senior Director of Product Marketing for Modern Apps. Well, welcome both of you to the show. And what we want to discuss today is modern apps, modern or a- application modernization is really the big idea, which is kind of kind of buzzwordy. So, uh, Dermaine, I want to start with you to set context for this conversation. We need to define what a modern app really is here. We're in, we're talking about moving to cloud. Okay, so is a modern app one thing, many possible things? What do we mean by this? Yeah, it, it, I think it's a good question. I, and it's interesting how you you kind of talked about, well, there's modern apps and there's app modernization. And mm. I actually prefer to talk about app modernization because that's a, a spectrum that can hit so many different applications. And it's kind of the journey that we're always on. Um, but the the how that journey plays out keeps evolving and changing as the technologies evolve. And so what app modernization would have looked like 10, 15 years ago is now going to be different. But and, and you could say the same thing about like, well, what's a modern app, right? Like what's a modern art, right? So, <laughs> you know, um, there's some, some definitions around, say, a cloud native application. And they're kind of looking at a spectrum from kind of cloud readiness to cloud friendliness and all the way up to... Uh, a cloud native application where you're you're highly resilient to failures. You're really designed for those types of scenarios where you're going to be hitting consumer scale, and uh, you have a high degree of isolation between components. But the reality is, like that's not necessarily needed for everything. Mm-hmm. But some point along that modernization spectrum might still be useful. And so navigating that app modernization spectrum is probably a more useful conversation than getting really wrapped around the axle on like, well, is this a modern app? It's like, well, it still uses a relational database and it's, you know, relying on, you know, hard consistency. It's like, well, you know, I mean, does it work? (laughs) Does it solve your business needs right now? Can you change it? then you're you're kind of arguing the wrong point. Right. Yeah, so 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 I think first of all I totally agree it's it's hard to pin down. And there there are a lot of different definitions like you can look at it from an application architecture standpoint as Dormain mentioned you can look at it from a application packaging standpoint is it using VMs versus containers uh how how is it using those things you can use you can look at it from a delivery standpoint have you adopted a CI CD process what sort of automation do you have there? And there's a variety of other aspects that come into it. And, you know, there's different definitions like 12 factor. Are you doing all 12 factors? And if you're not, if you only got 11 factors, are you still modern? (laughs) Yeah, you know, it doesn't really, I don't think it's very useful to wrap yourself up in in too much of that. And and then there's things kind of outside that, you know, like uh, an ML application. Is that a modern app? Well, I think so. It's certainly... (laughs) Pretty newish, you know. ML's <clears throat> still fa- fairly um, you know, novel, so it's it's a pretty wide umbrella. And like Domain said, I, I think focusing on the the modernization part of it, like taking looking at your application estate or portfolio and figuring out how are those applications serving you, uh, and where are they not, and where are the problems, especially with regards to your business priorities, and then how do you modify those apps such that they can better solve those business problems. You know, it's, it's, you see all these sorts of new technologies coming out, whether it's containers a few years ago or now serverless uh, more recently. And I occasionally will talk to customers and they'll say, hey, you know, we want to move everything over to containers, right? So I talked to a number of customers a few years ago we're saying we're doing this and I'm saying, okay, but like, why? Like, what's the business priority to move everything into containers? Uh, sure, if you got the time and you got nothing else to do, but I feel like you probably have some other important things to do. And so it's really about aligning uh, your business goals with the right technologies and figuring out how those technologies support those business goals. 
I was going to ask you what what is the ultimate goal of app modernization the way you think of it? And I, I think you put a, a pretty fine point on it that it, it needs to advance some sort of business goal or or do something good for the business. Dormeen, is that how you think of it as well? Yeah, I mean, there's kind of a, a litmus test that seems to come up a lot in some of the engagements that we we do with customers that's around kind of around the velocity that you need. And so I, I often use this sort of how fast does this application need to change? Mm. What's that, that change rate required? And so where you have applications that are in the critical path for revenue, for example, those are often ones that you're going to want a high degree of agility around. And so whether that's anything kind of a backing service for you know, an e-commerce site. And this, you know, we think of e-commerce as retail, but increasingly like a lot of different industries have to be able to provide some level of transactability uh, that they're trying to do digitally. And so whether they're, they're just trying to, for example, get insurance quotes out to customers digitally so that they don't have to get on the phone with an insurance rep or, you know, logistics wanting to be able to pipe in a headless service that an online retail partner can use in order to make sure that that's going to service, you know, a a shipping transaction that's going to be used by their logistics company. So, you know, just that's save that caveat of like e-commerce is more than just a retail problem. But those are often ones that you want to be able to iterate really fast to respond to changing customer requirements, uh, business requirements. And, you know, I remember working with Dick Sporting Goods and they were telling me about how their marketing department like was going to get the Yeezy shoes. And I was like, what's a Yeezy? (laughs) (laughs) Like they, they, they were laughing at me. They're like, you don't you don't know this you know, Kanye's shoe thing. And I'm like, I am so out of the loop, but they, they were able to like, yeah. And there, but it was a really tight window. They're like the marketing department's out there trying to cut this deal uh, for a, a limited edition type of, you know, piece of merchandise from a third party. But that means that they're going to have to make sure that the website can scale. Cause all of these kind of sneaker heads are going to be hitting their site mm. overnight. Um, they were able to do that, right? Because they had modernized in order to be able to support changes and ultimately the scalability and resiliency that was going to be needed for that. But then, you know, a counterexample um, that a friend, my a friend of mine used to use was, you know, he worked at NASA and they had a specialized applications for just for printing the the badges when you would come into any of the buildings, and you know. There, you know, it's a very secure facility. So they had a lot of important kind of custom things there. So it was a custom application, but it prints the name tags, right? It's if it's working, it's probably fine. Like that's probably pretty low on the priority of like, does that need to be 12 factor? I don't think so. Well, so so there's a point here that we don't have to have some some litmus test, a term you used earlier, where app modernization means if it's a modern app, it's cloud native or you know some hard and fast definition. Instead, what we're saying is, does it do what you need to do in, in the digital age? Or if we want to say digital transformation, if you've been yes. successfully transformed as far as you need, however the app is delivered, it is it, you would consider it modern? Yeah. Well, not however, but... It's about solving the business problem. It's not about getting to a modern app. Maybe, maybe that's the way of saying it. But it's like having that in your repertoire to be able to support a modern app, if you want to call it that, mm-hmm. that's that's going to be useful. And, yeah. and so uh, you're going to have things that are going to be running alongside each other that some things are going to need to go really fast. And you're going to probably want to get the couple out and and do the surgery on that that bit of code. But you're going to have other stuff that, doesn't need to be changed that fast, but increasingly with the, you know, volume of vulnerabilities that are getting uncovered every week, you increasingly need to be able to solve for a certain level of velocity, probably just to keep things patched and secured. Um, And I think of that as security hygiene more than any kind of really sophisticated, you know, advanced threat management. It's just basic hygiene, right? So velocity, as in keep the app up and running and available, but mm -hmm. be able to update, patch this thing so that it's secure. Mm -hmm. And that's where, you know, like containerizing the app, 
And right. having a CICD pipeline in place, even if this isn't a, you know, a bit of code that's in the critical path for revenue, but it's somewhere deeper in the system, uh, kind of a, in a, a backing backing service somewhere, you still need to keep that secure, right? Because that's that's where threats can sometimes come in is it's not the crown jewels that everyone has put into Fort Knox. It's that kind of like server over in the corner that no one's paying attention to that gets compromised. And then, uh, you know, a clever hacker is going to find their way through like a, a credential here and a credential there, and they're going to worm their way across until they do get into the crown jewels. Right. And so having a, a little bit of a, a mindset of, okay, where, where do we have, how can we raise the waterline of keeping our, our overall footprint here patched and available, even if it doesn't have to change tremendously, maybe we don't have to re-architect it, but can we restart it without disruption? That kind of, that one, like, like one that's factor. the part where, yeah. yeah, the one factor of, can we restart this thing? Like, you know, you, you, you realize like there are always those applications that folks are like, I'm, I'm, I'm laughing having been a former government uh, employee, a uh, small state government. And you talk about the server in the corner. It's like, what? What is that server in the corner? Don't touch it. Wait a minute. Why are there so many ser- why are there so many corners? And why is there a server in every corner? What's going yeah. on around here? Well, I mean, the Pentagon does have five corners. So it's got an extra corner. Valid point. But um I'm thinking about that um that card reader or the name badge maker app that you referred to before and how it's it's not in the critical path, but it is a security risk. And mm-hmm. if you don't modernize it in the sense that you keep it up to date with a language people know and it's up to date with the security patches, then you could be in real trouble if someone manages to hack into that system, make themselves a name badge, and suddenly they got access to all these other totally. areas. So totally. Is there a concern that even if it's not one of these shiny revenue generating apps, you still can't just let it slip into obscurity and have no one who understands the code base or the security implications. Yeah, I mean, I think like we we hear these examples of where that becomes very painfully obvious, uh, you know, when a, a particularly a government entity is, they can't actually change how they're rolling out paychecks to people because they don't have anybody who can change that code because of the language is so obscure. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, those, those kinds of, uh, headlines, you know, I think bring a lot of attention to the fact that, yeah, it is, there is a certain amount of, you can't totally like, Oh, if it ain't broke, don't touch it. But, mm-hmm. you know, you have to put things into like, what level of, are we talking about refactoring or are we talking about containerizing this and just getting it on a CICD pipeline? Are we talking about, just being able to have enough resiliency in our underlying infrastructure so that we can quickly stand up another copy and redirect to an updated version and minimize disruption that way. Yeah, I mean, I think for some of those apps, you can definitely take kind of an infrastructure approach and whether it's just enhancing the networking and security or that sort of thing and avoid even having to modify potentially the app. But you know, going back to what Domain was saying, and this is where the definition gets a little murky, it's like you do want to move toward kind of this DevSecOps type process for most of your applications, even if you're not going through fundamental architecture changes because of, of all the issues you just laid out. And you know it's becoming a bigger and bigger challenge to understand what is the provenance of the code that's running in my environment, whether a data center or public cloud or what have you, you know, where did that code come from? And a lot, a lot of times it's like random, you know, open source stuff people got and they got like downloaded a binary from the internet and who knows what, you know, what happened with that thing or who put what in there. And so that becomes a real security threat and a bigger and bigger one over time. And so you say, okay, well, I might have a traditional, again, air quotes here, uh, app using this very modern delivery process. So is it a modern app or is it not? Well, kind of hard to say. Right, right, and, and sometimes that code is just the top result from Stack Overflow. Let's be let's be honest here. Exactly. <laughs> well, that's that's yeah, that's the worry. And by the way, one, one final thing I'll say real quick: there, there was this interesting blog from Martin Fowler back in like 2015, I think, a long time ago, um, saying like, start with monoliths, right? So e- even for like modern applications, you know, what we'd all consider a modern app, some of this microservices and fully 12 factor. 
oftentimes it's better to start something super simple, just a traditional monolithic architecture. And over time, as the business needs change and grow and evolve, then you move to, to more of that microservices architecture. And the reason being that monoliths are very simple and they're easy to reason about, easy to debug. But then, you know, to Domain's point, if you have a situation where, man, I need to like push out a change tomorrow, well, sometimes it's hard to do that with a monolith. It doesn't work as well. So then you might say, okay, I need to go through and refactor. Or maybe you hit a, a greater level of scale and a monolith just, you know, you can't stamp out n number of horizontal copies and, and it won't linearly scale. Okay, so I got to refactor there. So like th there will be these certain inflection points where that sort of re-architecture is warranted by the business case. But the idea is like, okay, what can we do to start simple? and then move forward based on business needs. Right. Well, Kit, you just opened up the door to ask about VMware Cloud and how we should think of it now in the VMware product portfolio. We've talked about VMC on the on this show a, a few different yep. times. So folks, if you're not familiar with it, dig back through the Day 2 Cloud catalog. We've talked about it at some length. So position it for us now, Kit, in the, in the context yeah. of this conversation. Yeah, so first of all, we have somewhat expanded what, what, what we call VMware Cloud recently. Uh, I think typically speaking, when we say... VMware Cloud, we meant VMware Cloud on AWS, kind of like an infrastructure offering from us. <clears throat> and with a, uh, this kind of event we did recently, uh, it was really around unveiling much broader vision around what VMware Cloud can be. And that is bringing together our uh, infrastructure and application services and security and management and a whole bunch of other things together to be a real modern application multi-cloud platform. The idea being it can support your apps running in the public cloud, on-prem, at the edge, um, in the data center, and support both traditional and modern applications together. <clears throat> and so there's a bunch of work that we've done to, to bring together, you know, so, so a lot of the products and services people are familiar with, things like Tanzu, things like Realize, things like our infrastructure offerings, all into a more unified whole. So that's this very, very broad VMware cloud bucket here, or a new offering. And the goal there is really around application modernization. Well, modernization in general, both of the infrastructure and of the application. And so I think it uh, lands really well here because it talks a lot about and focuses a lot on the things we were just talking about. I think one of the, the concerns that some people might have when they're looking at their, we'll call it the app real estate. Because when I think of a large enterprise, it's not just like 10 apps or 15 apps. They have hundreds or thousands of apps that they're responsible for across multiple BUs, right? And how do you even start deciding which apps you should pay attention to, which ones would be good candidates for modernization, which ones you should move up to the cloud or out to the edge? Is there anything within the VMware cloud suite that sort of helps with that assessment portion of things before you even start making a move on changing an app? It's a good question because I think that that problem has existed for a long time and folks have often ended up with those assessments like taking on a life of their own and <laughs> you know like it's like well this is an 18 month assessment i mean well how much has changed in, like since when we started this assessment until you know now now we're done and so the need for kind of knowing enough to get started uh, has become really critical so this is actually a services engagement that VMware does uh, called the App Navigator. Because uh, this, this is kind of, this is hard to do completely like with just a, let's just throw some software at the problem. Mm -hmm. um, it, it requires having some expertise, uh, you know, like actual human expertise who can help you parse through what are we looking at here. Um, and so this kind of uh, App Navigator Engagement is another part of, of what we, we launched the other week, and it's a four-week engagement. And so, you know, enough time to be able to do that real estate-wide assessment, but not so much time that, like, the, the, the whole ball has moved by the time you get to the end of it. And they use that kind of, you know, weekly agile sprints that the, the Tanzu Labs team has, has really kind of mastered that that approach to the way that they work on software, including modernization projects, but they actually apply that now to these navigator kind of assessments. Yeah, so, yeah, that, so app that navigator that is it, it's a service domain, not a software product. That's right. That's yeah. right. 
that that makes a lot of sense to me because in a previous life I did a lot of consulting and we would be working alongside these big firms. And the first thing they would do when they came in is like, we're going to do an assessment and it's going to take six months to a year. And then we're going to start doing work. And yes. as soon as another firm would come in and say, we're going to do an assessment, I saw everybody at the company start rolling their eyes because they're like, oh, well, looks like we're not getting anything done for another six months now. <laughs> so it's right. cool to hear that this hits the ground running, it sounds like, as opposed to taking six months just to assess things. Right. It's like you, you can't like come in like guns blazing and just start blowing stuff up either. Like you do need you do need four weeks to kind right. of to, to be able to actually know what you're doing. And so it's kind of that minimum viable assessment, I guess, is is another way to think of it. And I'm glad to hear it's not all automation either, because I've also seen that side of things where the cell is, oh, we have this product that you just install some agents. It's going to collect all this data and it's going to tell you exactly where to move every application. And just as someone who's been a sysadmin, I'm like, there's no way that works. <laughs> like, yeah. it can be like a general guidance, but you need a human being that's actually going to help you out with that. Is that, do you, you kind of use both in, in the nav navigator? Yeah. I mean, you know, most folks that, yeah, do, do any kind of assessment, like there's often some kind of code analysis tool. And so there are code analysis tools and, and actually there's a lot of them that can get pulled in in order to do that assessment in a short amount of time. And I think folks are are often, yeah, they're looking for that easy button wherever possible. Uh, and when it comes to modernization, it's, you know, you just have to be careful, but the, you know, speaking with the, the, the Tanzu Labs teams, it's done a lot of modernization work the way they put it is like when you go into an organization, you'll often find that there's probably maybe like 10 patterns, right? That are the mm. most common patterns. And once you kind of understand what those are in an organization, then you can start to automate and stamp out a lot of improvements. So you develop kind of a, a cookbook that can be followed for that particular type of application that exists in an organization. And that then becomes where you get a lot of acceleration and repeatability. But sort of first identifying what are the, the sort of the tribes inside, you know, this uh, this particular organization, what, what types of patterns. And they, they can be unique to that organization because of just, you know, the, the human side of history of like, well, we had a policy for a while that we always did it this way. So you notice like a bunch of applications from that time that follow certain patterns. Right. And some of them end up evolving and some of them end up kind of sticking with that pattern. So once you kind of, it's almost like a, you know, a, a demographic study of what's going on. But then when you find these patterns, you can, you can start to do some level of automation. Right. I think that's called Conway's law, that the, the structure of your organization is going to define how your software is written. And right. I think that also harkens back to the monolith thing where, when you are a small company, you can, with a small organization, you can do monoliths because that's the way you're organized. But then as you break out, you need to start breaking apart that monolith too. Yeah. I mean, and, and to Kit's point earlier, like a well-formed monolith that doesn't have those requirements of it needs to be able to scale independently, you know, where one function within that monolith is, is going to get a lot more action than other parts then that might be fine. And that doesn't, even in a big organization, a good, well-formed monolith that's doing its job and doesn't have those requirements, keep it that way, right? There's no need, but, but figure out how do you keep it healthy? And then yes, where you're running into those constraints where we have a slice of functionality that we, we need to be able to change much more often. Great. Then you can carve off just that piece. You don't have to break everything up. And, you know, I'm thinking about, some of an engagement we did with travelers insurance and there they were actually trying to modernize off of mainframe. And this is like, a lot of people think, okay, when you're modernizing mainframe, it's like, there's no more mainframe at the end of the story. Um, <laughs> but that's not <laughs> necessarily true, right? Like, mm -hmm. as we all know, the mainframe never dies um, and <laughs> they're still here, but they, they were able to slice off the functionality that they did need to move faster, modernize it into .NET Core. And then what was what was great talking through the, the team there was, you know, they, they first kind of broke it down too small and they were running into a lot of chattiness between the components 
and uh, incurring like a performance overhead. Mm-hmm. And that's always the thing, like one of the the, the great things about mainframe is, hey, it, it meets a performance requirement. That's um, that's often why they are, they're persisting. And so they actually sort of swung back and they started to combine back up some of the services to sort of find the right amount. I, I sort of talk about this as like the Goldilocks uh, level of uh, sort of isolation. And so you don't wanna get too small right? Sometimes that's, you're incurring more complexity and a performance hit. So you have to kind of find like that, that Goldilocks balance of, okay, now we, now we've identified the pieces that these, these parts need to stay together because they change together and they scale together and they're talking to each other in order to, to complete their processing. But these pieces over here, they can, they can be separate and we're going to get benefits by having them isolated. I like that the Goldilocks zone. That's that's yeah, uh, just right. <laughs> just right. It's almost like there's not one right way to do it, and and, and I think that is the trap a lot of uh, we engineers fall into. We want the one right way to uh, to deliver our app, to deliver our networks, to deliver a security paradigm, whatever it is, and and there isn't. You have to take every case, every business individually, and find the correct answer with its associated trade offs for that particular situation. Yeah. Absolutely. I think as engineers, we also sort of have this progression in our mind of we were on mainframes and then we moved to Wintel and that was awesome. And then we moved to VMware and that was awesome. And now the natural next thing is, is you know, Kubernetes and containers. That's, that's just the natural progression of things. But then you're pointing out, if you look at the actual reality, nothing ever dies or goes away. All of those older platforms still exist. So it sounds like my app is going to potentially move through the, each of these platforms, but it might just stay on one of them. Is that is that the right way to look at it? Yeah, or, absolutely. Or components, components stay. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think well, one of the most common patterns that we see is, I don't know, this is the term we use internally. I don't know if it's industry standard, but it's kind of a greenfield on brownfield pattern <laughs> where <laughs> you have the, this existing app, usually a more traditional architecture, monolithic architecture, what have you. And what you see people wanting to do is to start extracting various uh, aspects of functionality from that app and then rewriting those things as microservices, having clean APIs there and so forth. And so what you find then is that you may have this traditional app still running in a VM, you know, maybe even still on-prem in some cases. You have the, the new thing of microservices running in containers. You might have some like traditional database that it's talking to for you know persistence and all that. And so you start getting this, this very, very heterogeneous architecture for the application. And we're seeing this more and more. Well, you know, again, this greenfield on brownfield is probably one of those common patterns that we see. And it's you know, very much part and parcel of the overall application modernization uh, process, right? That you can't rewrite the whole app in one day. And so how do you do it? Well, you take it sort of iteratively by breaking down this big problem to a set of smaller problems and iteratively go through. What that means is that you're in a situation where for a long time, possibly the foreseeable future, where you have multiple technologies at play, multiple architectures at play that all make up one logical application. Yeah, and I think like one of the the challenges in that, when you kind of accept that reality that we're not gonna be able to boil the ocean and get everything to this clean, sterile place we want it to be, we're gonna have this heterogeneity. So where can you drive consistency? Because consistency is very powerful and it will help reduce a lot of that toil that comes from, you know, everything from like worked in dev, like, I don't know why it's not working abroad, <laughs> you know? And it's like, well, you know, your dev environment, your product environment are like, they're either vastly different or the hardest one is where it's like, it's 0.5% different. <laughs> you know, and that that one little difference between dev and prod and they're not at parity, it's that 0.5% non-parity that's like, oh, that's why it's not working in the expected way. And so, you know, or just at your at the infrastructure level, right? Like ha- every time we have to stand something up, how can we drive consistency so that we're not having to go in and manage all this infrastructure in kind of a custom, you know, Japanese craftsmanship way. Like Japanese craftsmanship is awesome for Japanese crafts and like, and things, but that's probably not how you should be dealing with your IT infrastructure. Yeah. So I I look at it a few different ways. I I think this, this aspect of consistency is super important. 
you know, we think a lot about it on the infrastructure side, obviously, as Domain just mentioned. Uh, it's a lot of what we're doing with integrating Kubernetes into vSphere. I mean, you talked about this notion of, hey, Kubernetes is like a big thing. And of course it is. We're seeing a ton of uptake there. But we want to drive consistency in terms of how you deliver that infrastructure capability to developers, to operators, how you manage that. There's, you know, consistency at the DevSecOps level as well, mm -hmm. right? This notion of <clears throat> how are you actually delivering these bits, irrespective of what infrastructure the thing's running on or what architecture the app has, there should be a consistent way that you do this and it should be auditable and you should be able to go back and figure out, you know, to Dormain's point, okay, how, how does it work in your development environment? How does it work in production? And be able to very quickly see the difference there. And then there's, you know, consistency in terms of the application architecture as well and what you're looking at there and managing across those different application architectures and how do you bring that in? And so like consistent these different levels enables more things around management and automation and security and all the other you know, compliance, all these other aspects of actually operating an application. Does that mean I, if I can find the consistent bits as I'm modernizing my application, do I get to move my application around? I don't want to host it on-prem anymore. I want to move it to the cloud because reasons. Is that where that gets me? I yeah. Mean, it, it certainly helps a lot. Yeah. So I think, there, I think there's a few different levels of abstraction there, right? So if you look at like, uh, the virtualization consistency, right? So um, that's a big focus for us because we have a lot of customers who have most of their apps still in VMs and they say, hey, I want to move these up to the cloud. And traditionally in that model, it does mean that you are doing some amount of rework to that app. You're changing the operational tooling, maybe even refactoring it a little bit, hopefully not too much, but there is you know, a, a, some manual work required there. And yet what we can do with VMware Cloud is really give you that consistent Infrastructure on both sides, you can literally vMotion that workload up to the cloud, and we see customers moving things really quickly. The other level of consistency that I find is then trying to use um, an infrastructure abstraction like Kubernetes. So you're not dealing with core virtualization anymore, you're kind of one level up in the stack, so to speak, and saying, you know what, I want to be able to run across clouds or even on-prem, and I want to have a bit of freedom to, to move it around. And so there, you want to use Kubernetes as that infrastructure abstraction. You still get core network, compute, storage, and some other services like that. But now you get a lot more flexibility in terms of how you move things around. So that's a big focus for us as well, obviously, with everything we're doing with Tanzu. Tanzu Kubernetes Grid for the core cluster, or Kubernetes clusters, as well as Tanzu Mission Control for management of those Kubernetes environments. And then there's, you know, at our enterprise management level, we look at it and say, okay, so even if, let's say, you're using some native AWS and you're using some native Azure and you've got some stuff on-prem, well, you still want to be able to do some of your operations consistently across those quite diverse environments, right? With quite diverse applications. And so being able to bring automation and governance, be able to bring uh, operations management, network insight, you know, these sorts of things, cost management consistently. So those are the kind of three different levels of abstraction in terms of consistency that, that we tend to think about. As I move stuff around, does my licensing just get really confusing because I'm used to different environments, different licensing schemes, and so on. So uh, that yeah. doesn't sound like a pleasant thing to deal with, honestly. Yeah. No, that's a good point. And this is something that we were hearing a lot from customers that, hey, you guys have all these offers, all you know, different solutions, some on-prem, some in the cloud. Like, how do we really simplify consuming all of this? So that's what spawned this idea of VMware Cloud Universal, which we also just launched recently with the kind of broader VMware Cloud that I discussed earlier. And the idea with VMware Cloud Universal is really it's kind of the, the one-stop shop for what is today VMware Cloud infrastructure, but will expand to other aspects of VMware Cloud over time. So what I mean by that is that you can buy into VMware Cloud Universal and then be able to get access to VMware Cloud on AWS, VMware Cloud on Dell EMC, as well as uh, VMware Cloud Foundation, and be able to move workloads between those and move your entitlements between those as well. Mm. And so the goal here is that we don't really want you to start thinking about or keep thinking about VMware Cloud as a bunch of individual products. It's, it's an overall solution. You should be able to buy into that overall solution, then have a lot of flexibility in terms of which of the specific components of that solution that you choose to use. And you know, as we mentioned, that might change based on your, your business priorities. I think this is this is so important because it kind of co it comes back to that like 
first we're going to do the assessment and it's going to take six months, right? You run into the same thing with, we have to build our cloud plan and we, we don't know exactly what's going to move, how fast, when, and if we have to try to thread the needle on a bunch of different licensing agreements, then it's just going to slow down the whole process, you know? And it, it, I think of it as like, it makes it feel like a type one decision. And we really want to make these type two decisions, right? Which is like, okay, you can change it. I, I don't know if you're familiar with type one and type two decisions, right? Where type one decisions are like, these are ones you want to do, you, you be careful about because they're very difficult to undo, right? And type two decisions are ones that you can make that decision now, but if you need to go back and you need to reverse that decision, you can do you can do that, right? And so like what happens is a lot of things get treated like type one decisions and this can happen in, you know, in personal life or in organizations where you see this creep of type one decision thinking and everyone is getting really wrapped up in trying to, you know, make the perfect choice and that you, you get analysis paralysis and it's a fear of like, what's going to happen if we get this wrong. Um, and this is, this comes into application design all the time, right? Where it's like, we have to perfect the architecture, right? We have to get it right. And this is the big upfront design approach that then it takes months and months. And then by the time the software actually ships, it's like, well, well, actually now we have smartphones <laughs> and we need it to work <laughs> on a smartphone, right? Um, and so you can actually create a lot of problems when you treat too many things like a type one decision. And I, this comes up a lot and, you know, I do product marketing. So we, we like to get the messaging right. And so sometimes, you know, we get a lot of folks weighing in. I was like, Oh, you got to get, pick those words carefully. And sometimes it's like, this is web copy, right? If I need to, I can change that word, right? <laughs> yeah. I can change it tomorrow. Yeah. Like this is a type two decision. Let's not turn this into a type one decision. So that's that it's an agile mindset as much as it is how you actually set yourselves up to be able to treat more things as a type two decision. So when I look at VMware Cloud Universal, I'm like, this is great. This, this totally opens up type two decision-making for folks because they can, they can change what they're doing. They don't have to have the big upfront design master plan that will undoubtedly be wrong somewhere, right? Just because this is life and reality, but you can, you can enter the fray and know that you can change decisions. You can change your mind and you actually now have a, a licensing model that supports and aligns that. So now it's just really kind of up to you. If you're going to, if you're going to do all the other things to make these more type two decisions wherever possible. I like that, like that framework. I wasn't aware of the type one versus type two. First I was like, is it like, type A or whatever type B personality thing, but no, no, okay, <laughs> I get it. No, but I, I totally agree. And it's, it's this notion of preparing and optimizing for the inevitability of change, or maybe another way of putting it is optionality, right? And because what we have seen with customers is that they you know, decide they want to move to cloud and you know, they originally have a plan that's like, oh, it's going to take me a few years and you know, because I got to move all these apps manually. Then we come along with VMware Cloud, let's say VMware Cloud on AWS, and they find they can move much faster. And they say, oh man, like uh, this is awesome. So they want to move fast, but then they're saying, hey, I got all these licenses on-prem uh, that I don't need anymore, right? And I got to buy more licenses up in the cloud because I got more stuff running in the cloud. And so the great part about Universal is it doesn't matter. Like it's, you're buying into the same thing. It's like, it's all one pool of, you know, resources, entitlements there, licenses. And so as you move to the cloud, whether it's faster or slower, and you need to move back on-prem or something else changes, you have that optionality. And VMware Cloud Universal supports you in that. And I think that's you know the, the really big uh, piece there. And I like what you mentioned, Dormain. It's like, hey, we know we want to move to the cloud, so let's, let's go that direction, and then let's figure it out on the fly. Like, if we find that we can move a lot faster and things are going great, great, let's speed it up. If not, you know, we hit some road bumps, oh, that's fine too. We can take our time and focus on the most important business problems rather than necessarily being artificially constrained by some plan you made two years ago. Licensing is one of those things that's always just given me a headache, uh, especially when I was doing <laughs> consulting and trying to make sure you get the licensing right in the uh, in the work plan. So you buy the right things, and you're not showing up with the wrong licensing when it's time to install. So that's, uh, that's always dangerous. Uh, one 
to, to go back on the consistency theme, because I really like this idea of like multiple levels of consistency and, and abstraction. You mentioned the virtualization layer, and that's, I definitely want some consistency there and Kubernetes being more of an infrastructure abstraction. But the one above that was the management abstraction. And I'd just like you to dig into that a little bit more. What, what do you, what's included in your mind in that management abstraction and how does software development fit into that? So that's a good question. And maybe Dormain could talk somewhat about the, the kind of build side. I think of it, you know, I've been putting a lot of thought recently into more of like the run side that, okay, you've got these things in production and now you have a fairly diverse um, number of infrastructures that you may run on. So taking it just a quick step back on this, because, uh, you know, we have a lot of discussions with, with folks on what is your multi-cloud strategy and is it, is there really a strategy there? Or is it kind of just an inevitability, something that happens, right? So, you know, we've debated this and uh, what we find is that, Sometimes people have a strategy, but oftentimes they don't. And lines of business go off and do their own things in different clouds. They get an acquisition, they're using a different cloud. So this presents a lot of challenges uh, to the business in the sense of there's various risks that you have. There's risks in terms of, can you actually maintain your SLAs uh, for that service? Are there security and compliance risks? You look at the different tooling that people have, uh, the different sorts of SRE teams that get built up around this. And oftentimes what you find is that people have to duplicate all these things on an individual cloud or you know infrastructure basis, right? They have different ones in public cloud from on-prem and between public clouds. <clears throat> and not only are the teams duplicated, the tooling is duplicated as well. And so it gets really hard to sort of manage that. And so I think what we're looking at is saying, hey, how can we drive better standardization there so that when these apps are going out, you can give your developers choice. So they, hey, they, they may love the ML services on this one cloud and may love these other types of services on a different cloud. And, and maybe there's a good business reason to use both of those things. Okay, so how do we best support them? At the same time, ensuring all the different sort of enterprise production requirements that are there, right? And how do you do that in a way that's cost-effective? And so I think that's really where I look at it on the run side uh, from a management perspective and consistency of management. Yeah, it's and my my favorite expression from Cornelia Davis on this was, you know, a Kubernetes is not a Kubernetes is not a Kubernetes. <laughs> so like they all use that word, but depending on where you're getting this from different cloud providers or even just the way different teams have configured it, you, you can end up with sort of different exposures of what are the Kubernetes APIs that I as an operator have access to in order to apply the configurations that I want and, and manage this on an ongoing basis. And I have to go, if I have to, the more I have to go and treat these clusters over here differently than I treat those clusters over there, the more I have that, then the, the more toil that I incur. So something like Tanzu Mission Control, it, you can use it to provision your clusters and then you're kind of, you're driving that consistency from the moment of birth but you can also attach any CNCF compliant cluster. And then you can start to, even there we were like, hey, we got to deal with reality, right? Like some other teams went ahead and spun up their own cluster somewhere. It's okay, right? Like we may not have the consistency at that level, but we can bump up a level and say at the management level, we can now apply overall management practices. And that will then drive down the overall toil and effort and so that that's at that layer to kind of get into some of those, when you think about higher levels, like when you think about, for example, you know, Kubernetes is, is orchestrating the containers, but what's in the box, right? Like what's going <laughs> in these containers? What's in the box? <laughs> what's in the box? So how do those containers get built? And, you know, if you're a developer, you probably like containers, but you probably don't like building them, right? Like you, as much as you can just sort of offload that, that's great. So you could sort of take like, hey, just look, how do I do this? Make a Docker file, great, or done. But then you end up with, well, you, you might end up with a bloated container, right? That you just, you've just shoved in more operating system than you, than you needed, um, which actually increases the overall attack surface area. So from a security perspective, it's not a best practice. It also can, you know, hurt you from a performance perspective. And that's actually the thing that probably triggers more developers to go back and earn their, their container whittling badge um, <laughs> from the, the 
the Cub Scouts of development. I just, I've just invented this organization right now, by the way, I will be issuing patches. Um, they'll be delightful. So that time of like, I'm going to, I'm going to whittle this container down to just the pieces that I need. And that's really like, that was a big promise of containers in the first place, right? Is just enough OS. And, and that's, that's a security best practice, but it's a performance thing. Now the question is, okay, if I have all my different development teams and they're packing various flavors of operating system in there, right? Like if we leave this up to the masses to do, you kind of have the wild west situation on your hands. Um, and, you know, the friend of mine used to call this the mystery meat problem. Like what got packed in there? You know, we've got CentOS over here. We have a, you know, Debian like operating system over here. And then it's like different JDKs. It's like, well, sure, they're all Java, but like <laughs> you, you just have all these different layers of potential variation. So this is where things like the Tanzu build service actually takes that process and offloads the developers. The developer doesn't have to get that whittling badge. But it also kind of lets you drive that consistency. And so, hey, we've got a, a, a golden image operating system. That's what we want to put in all of these containers. And so sometime in the future, when a CVE is uncovered and we're like, hey, what's our exposure area? You now have the metadata about all of your containers to say, oh, we're, we're using that version. So let's, let's roll out an update or nope, we're on a different version. We're good. You can answer that question very quickly. And that's super important from a, just a security perspective, but then you're also driving consistency at those other layers. And that it's even, it's very clever in that, you know, you can even go back and rebuild that container without disturbing the developer, right? You don't, you don't put that work on them. And that's kind of what I think of as like the, the twofold tax of those types of updates where you're paying a tax in terms of your exposure window and the, the longer it takes for you to go back and make that update. If, if you're dealing with the CVE, the longer it takes, the higher your exposure rate is, right? The dwell time factor from a, from a, a security perspective. But then the other tax is if you have to go back to developers and say, mm, we need you to you know, re-image that or we need you to rebuild that container, you're now taking away from the time, the precious time that they have to actually build something of business value. And so that double tax is really hard. <laughs> like mm -hmm. we don't want, you don't want to pay that. So this is where if you can drive consistency, then you just have a, a better understanding of where, what you have out there, what your exposure levels are. But if you can automate that, right? Like you can drive consistency through very labor intensive craftsmanship, or you can automate it. And that's going to be the way that you're going to actually be able to reach everything that you're doing and build those containers in a consistent way. And with a point of control that you can go back and say like, I just need to change this slice right here. Well, this has been an interesting conversation on app modernization. I've taken something away that I did not expect to take away. I expected to take away, there is a way, a specific journey, and at the end of the journey, you have modernized your apps in this one way, and this is what it looks like. And that is that is not reality because uh, this is the variety of uh, business needs and the variety of application architectures that exist and so on. And there is no one right way to modernize your apps and get to a state of of app modernization. I have a lot to think about. I am I'm grinding through a lot of different things in my mind <laughs> based on this conversation. So thanks to both of you for uh, for sharing your thoughts uh, on this. Uh, Dermaine, starting with you, would you let people know how they can follow you on the internet? Uh, and if there's anywhere else you'd like to direct them, blogs or books or anything like that, please feel free. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I'm, you know, I'm pretty active on Twitter at Dormain Drewitz. Uh, you will get chocolate tasting notes. Just that's a little <laughs> disclaimer. So if you're really averse to chocolate or hearing ever about it, like, okay, probably don't follow me then. But, uh, you know, we've got a lot of great resources on the, the Tanzu part of the VMware site, tanzu.vmware.com. Uh, you know, one thing that came to mind was a, a, a book about responsible microservices from my colleague, Nate Shuda. So since we were talking about, you know, when does it make sense to actually make something into a microservice, for example, that's a great little uh, O'Reilly book that, that we have there. And then just in terms of news and kind of catching up on things, uh, published a blog post on March 31st that just as sort of a, a, a roundup of a lot of different 
updates from across the, the Tanzu side of the portfolio. Everything from a lot of the integration and collaboration we're doing with our you know, colleagues across VMware and, and how we're part of the broader VMware Cloud and VMware Cloud Universal announcement, but just other enhancements to that DevSecOps story and how we're supporting folks kind of having, having the capabilities they need to build those types of platforms. We didn't get into platforms, you know, in that concept too much today, but that's a big one. And then also, you know, even at the app layer and, and those, how do we, how do we make it easier for folks to developers to adopt new patterns um, and get started quickly and, and really offload a lot of the scaffolding and infrastructure layers that just slow them down. So that that blog you can find on the Tanzu blog. A lot of metaphors there, a lot of metaphors, but, uh, but very good, Dormain. Thank you for joining us on Day 2 Cloud today. Thank Kit, you. same question to you. Yeah, well, thank you for having us, first of all, and um, love the discussion. And, you know, it's very much an evolving conversation. And so... Um, have it with talk with a bunch of folks on Twitter and just at Kit Colbert on Twitter. Uh, also on our uh, Octo blog for VMware, octo.vmware.com. I blog on there pretty regularly, taking a lot of the discussions from Twitter and trying to formalize them, formalize my thoughts around them. So I'd love to get people to check that out and get, get your feedback. And then the other thing that I'd recommend, if you haven't had a chance to check out yet, is the uh, app, modern app and cloud event that we did uh, recently. So that one uh, is vmware.com slash app dash cloud dash event.html, which I think it's also going to be in the show notes in case you didn't follow what I just oh, yes. said. <laughs> yes. But um, it's a nice succinct summary of you know, the broader VMware cloud vision, uh, what we're doing there across our portfolio, as well as some inform- more information on VMware cloud universal. So definitely check that one out. Well, once again, thanks to both of you for appearing on Day 2 Cloud today and catching us up on VMware's thoughts on app modernization and how VMware can help us all with that. And if you're listening, thanks to all of you for tuning in. Virtual high fives because you're awesome people out there. And if you have suggestions for future shows, vendors you want to hear from, topics you want to discuss, we want to hear them. Hit Ned and I up on Twitter at Day2CloudShow or fill out the form on Ned's fancy website, nedinthecloud.com. And if you like engineering-oriented shows like this one, because of course you do, visit packetpushers.net slash subscribe. All of our podcasts, newsletters, and websites are there. It's nerdy content for you. That's what it all is. It's designed for your professional career development, and it's, it's all free. And until then, just remember that cloud is what happens while IT is making other plans.